Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. It's my joy today to introduce to you my oldest son, Jesse Stewart, who is joining me in this ministry. Amen. Grab a seat. Grab a seat. Man, Tuesday nights. So, so glad you guys are here. If you are new, my name is Jesse, and I'm so glad that you decided to join us tonight for Ignite. So glad that you're here. Uh, I wasn't here last week, so I missed you guys, but I know Jenny did a phenomenal job, so I'm going to thank her for stepping up and doing an awesome, awesome job. And so tonight, we have the amazing opportunity to jump into a brand new series. So let me say something that I doubt you've ever heard anybody say in a church before, and that's to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Habakkuk, because that's what we're going to be looking at in this, tonight in this new series. So really, take your Bibles, open them up, look. There is no shame if you have no idea where the book of Habakkuk is. No shame. Feel free to pull up that table of contents or if you have it on your phone, it should be in the minor prophet section of the Bible around Jonah, Nahum, Zephaniah, those books that we often don't spend much time talking about. But tonight I'm super excited about going through this very small book together because to me this is such a powerful book. And if you're like me, when I was in college, I never read Habakkuk before, probably never even heard anybody talk about Habakkuk before. And really, even as somebody who is in ministry, I, not really, I really didn't know much about this book until about six months ago. And my wife and I went, started doing this Bible study together in this book. And when I started opening up the pages of this Bible study and opening up the pages to God's Word in the book of Habakkuk, it really opened my eyes to see how beautiful this book is and how amazing it is. And so we're going to spend some time going through this three-chapter book of the Bible. So we're not going to be in this for very long. In fact, we're just going to spend our time looking at basically a chapter per week. And so really the way this is going to be set up is that it's almost like a trilogy, a movie trilogy. Think about it from that perspective, where we're going to be talking about each week one chapter, but all of it will really kind of connect together at the end. And so all the pieces of the puzzle might not be put together after each message, but overall we're going to be looking at this book and and really seeing God's sovereignty. That's why we're, we're titling this series Still Sovereign. Sovereignty is a word we throw around a lot in church, but we don't often define it. And simply put, sovereignty is just God's control over everything. We have a God who is all-powerful, and so we believe that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1. And so that's the idea that God is sovereign, that God is in control. And so this book, man, it's rich, and it's good, and it's very, very relatable to where we are in our lives today. And so we're going to walk through it, and we're going to see what God's going to teach us, and I think we're going to have a great time doing it. So I'm excited. I hope you guys are. Let's pray, and then we'll spend some time getting started this morning. Father God, thank you so much for just the opportunity we have to be here tonight, the opportunity that we have to dive into your word. And God, I thank you for this book that you've allowed to be in the pages of Scripture. And even though so often this isn't a book that we look at, Lord, we know that this is your word. This is inspired, God-breathed text. And so my prayer, God, is that you would speak to every single one of us in this room tonight that every single one of us in this room would hear from you, that we would encounter you, and that we'd be changed as you come into our lives and make us look more like Jesus. And so that's my prayer tonight. That's my hope tonight. I just thank you so much for being here, God. We admit, Lord, that there is no place that we'd rather be than in your love. So may your presence be felt. May your glory resonate out of here, Lord, radiate out of here. And may we just enjoy our time together tonight. And I pray all this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So 
my senior year of college, right after Christmas, my wife and I, along with her mom, decided to go up to visit her aunt up in Delaware. So my wife and I, we were engaged at the time. We were about six or so months away from getting married. And we had gone up and visited her aunt a couple of times. And it was always fun because I grew up in Atlanta. So the north is just something that's so fascinating to me because the weather's different. And it's cold and it's just great. And so I decided, we went up there. And when we were visiting her aunt, having a good time, she told us about this amazing opportunity, this incredible opportunity that we were not aware of until we showed up at her place. And it was that for $60, we could take a Greyhound bus round trip from Delaware to New York City. And I was somebody, and still am, and I love New York City, and especially growing up, all the movies that I loved and the TV shows I enjoyed watching always took place in New York City. So it was a place that I always wanted to go to, a place that I always wanted to visit. And so even though this was a little bit out of our comfort zone, and even though, let's be honest, it sounded a little bit sketch, we thought, you know what, Why not? let's give it a shot. Let's do it. Let's do it. So we got up the day before New Year's Eve. And it was like super early, probably like five o'clock in the morning to get to this bus, shop, this bus stop in order to go from Delaware two hours up to the Big Apple. And when we got there, we were ready to take a bite. We were ready. We were excited. I, I thought that was going to land a little bit better than that. That's on me. That's on me. My confidence in my dad jokes have just, has just waned a lot. So, so we get there. Now, of course, it's amazing to be in New York City if you've ever been there before. I mean, it's just like, it really is like a concrete jungle. It's just huge and massive, and just everything you see is just a skyscraper. It's insane. It's incredible. And as cool as it was to be there, and we were two broke college students. And so our, you guys get this, right? Our, our limitations were pretty high. I mean, we couldn't really do a lot in this giant city. We couldn't go to a Broadway show. We couldn't do all the great stuff that you're supposed to do in New York because we don't have any money. And so really the only thing that we could do was just walk around this massive city. But here's our problem. Right before we went up there, New York had gotten this massive snowstorm. Like 8 to 12 inches of snow was just dumped on this city. So it was extremely cold and just extremely wet outside, like everywhere that you went. In fact, it was so wet that my wife brought shoes that within a few hours she had to throw away and go to the world's biggest Forever 21 in Times Square and spend money getting new shoes. I mean, that's how crazy it was. It was just cold. It was just wet. And so we were, you know, doing a lot, but most of the stuff we were doing was outside. So you can imagine it wasn't a whole lot of fun to be there at least outside. But as we were kind of making our way to these iconic sites like Central Park and the Rockefeller Center that has the tree that you always see get lit up, we saw something that I will never forget. Because as we were going from place to place, making our way around the city, there was one street corner that we turned and against this building, kind of propped up against it, was this object It's kind of hard to describe, but it was probably about two to three feet high. And it was covered in like some cream-colored material. Like it was just kind of covered in that. And as hundreds, if not thousands of people were just going down. I mean, it was packed out. Again, day before New Year's Eve. It was crazy crazy packed out. As all these people were passing by, nobody was really paying any attention to it. In fact, most people were acting like it wasn't even there, including myself. I mean, I didn't even notice anything was even on the street corner or was even there until Shara drew my attention towards it. 
And so as we're walking and we're making our way to these different places, she draws my attention to this object that is sitting against this building. And when she did, she said something that knocked me sideways. Because she said, Jesse, that's a person. And she was right. Propped up against this building, I can only assume down on their sitting down with their arms wrapped around their knees and their head tucked under and covered in what I can only assume are blankets with somebody who was out there just trying to stay warm in the cold, bitter weather of New York City. And when I realized that this person was an object, or excuse me, this was a person and not an object, I mean, it shook me up. Like, I was like, what? This is crazy. Because I couldn't believe how this person right in front of me was just sitting there suffering and so many people walked by living a normal life, acting like nothing was happening, acting like nothing was even wrong. But what bothered me even more, or just as much at least, was seeing this person who's sitting there obviously in this very miserable situation was that I had no idea what I could do to help. What I could do to make this stop, right? I wanted to do something. I longed to do something. I was torn up inside because I saw that happen. I'm like, this is not right. This should not be happening. This should not be taking place. But I had no idea what to do. Instead, all these emotions were so welding up inside of me that I really didn't even know which one to pick. And so like the thousands of other people on that street corner, we just kept walking. But as we did, I found myself looking back at this person And I don't know how in the world they ended up on a street corner in New York City on that day, but it broke my heart that they were there. It broke my heart that there was somebody sitting there suffering and nobody even seemed to care. It broke my heart, all the wrong things that I saw happening in that moment, including my own posture towards everything that was going on before I even recognized it. broke my heart. And how I felt in that brief moment in New York City on that day is what I believe the writer Habakkuk, who was penning this book that we're looking at today, is feeling and experiencing every single day. Because see, Habakkuk wrote in the 7th century BC, a time when God's people were just openly indulging in sin. I mean, they were living out evil lives, doing bad things, and didn't even care that they were doing them. And so as Habakkuk is sitting here looking at this and writing this, his country, Judah, where he is seeing, where he's living, rather, he is seeing all these people suffering. I mean, crime is running rampant. People are in pain, and it bothers Habakkuk. And it bothers him to see what is happening, to watch and see people getting hurt and to watch other people hurting them. It absolutely broke his heart. And so as he's living in this context and he's living in this situation where so many people are in pain and so many people are suffering, he decides to do something about it. He decides to talk to God, to have a conversation with him. In fact, this entire book that we're going to look at is a conversation between Habakkuk and God. 
And as we start to unpack this, what we're going to see is how much this relates to our lives today, but also we're going to see what it means to follow a sovereign God of the universe every single step of the way. And so let's begin reading in Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, to see what God has to teach us tonight. So remember, this is, and you'll see from the beginning, Habakkuk is writing because he is fed up. His heart is broken. It bothers him because of all the stuff that he's seeing that's happening in this country, Judah, what's going on around him. So this is what it says, Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. It says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity or see sin? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And so we see he really starts off this prayer to God, very similar to a psalm. If you read the psalms or you were with us this summer, went through a series in the psalms, this is very similar to what we see those writers doing. When they come to God with their real and their raw emotions, just expressing out of their heart how they feel. And so we see as Habakkuk starts this conversation, he's complaining to God because of all the stuff that he sees going on in his country. As he looks at his friends, he looks at his family, as he looks at his neighbors, all he sees is violence and destruction. He says it's like the law of God is paralyzed, unable to move, unable to do anything because nobody's following. Nobody's trying to pursue after God. Nobody's trying to live a righteous life. And so Habakkuk decides, I'm going to talk to God about this because I'm confused. I'm confused why God, who is sovereign, who is controlled, who has has control over everything, isn't doing something to stop this. I mean, notice how he comes at God with three very accusing questions as he starts off. Asking God why he doesn't hear his cry for help. Asking why God doesn't save his own people from violence. And asking why, get this, that God makes him the prophet, look at all of the injustice that is going on in his country when God nonchalantly looks back and just kind of watches from afar. I mean, that's the claim that Habakkuk is making when he says that God oddly looks at wrong. It's not that he doesn't see it. It's just that he doesn't seem to care enough to stop it. Whew, that's an accusation that he's making there. And so what we see, bottom line, is that things in Judah are really bad. And Habakkuk has a lot of questions because he doesn't understand how a sovereign God would allow so much wickedness to go on unchecked. I love how one commentary put it. They say that he, Habakkuk accuses God of doing two things, of being indifferent and insensitive. He's indifferent to all the evil that is going on and he's insensitive to how many people who are being hurt by it. That's the accusation that Habakkuk lays out here. And this is strong and this is harsh and probably we've never sat down and written these words out the way that Habakkuk has. But if we're honest with ourselves, so many of us have found ourselves in this same place, have found ourselves wondering these same questions, being confused and frustrated because we look around and we don't really understand what God is doing. And because of that, we find ourselves asking some pretty hard questions. 
Questions like, God, why have you allowed my grandmother to get so sick? Or God, why don't you stop my dad from treating me so badly? Or God, why do I still struggle with loneliness even though I find myself surrounded by people so much of the time? And maybe like Habakkuk, for you, it's not individual questions that you're asking about yourself, but maybe you find yourself asking questions on a more collective level. Because like him, it breaks your heart that there are people today who are still being abused or physically taken advantage of. Or who are still being judged because of the color of their skin and not the content of their character. And unfortunately, there are those in this room today who have experienced one or maybe even both of those wrongs. And we just want to know why, God. Why don't you step in and stop this from happening? So, man, we all get what Habakkuk is going through here. We all understand where he finds himself. Because we also know what it's like to think that God is indifferent or that he's insensitive to what's going on in our life or what's going on in the world around us. What's incredible, though, is that when Habakkuk asks God this question, he actually answers back this time. He doesn't stay silent. Instead, he shows him that he's not disconnected the way that Habakkuk thinks that he is. In fact, he's very much involved in what's happening. So notice what it says next, right after this. We see God's answer, God's response to Habakkuk, starting in verse 5. Listen to what it says. God says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. Come on, right? God is bringing it in. Listen to what he says in verse 6. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the earth, through the breath of the earth, to seize dwellings not their own. And so God shows the back in here that he's not indifferent to the situation. He shows him that he's not insensitive to what's happening. He's not idly looking at wrong from afar. Instead, he is active. Instead, he's got a plan. And this is what his plan is to raise up this nation called the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Some of you maybe study that in school. King Nebuchadnezzar, the hanging fruit, seven wonders of the world, right? That's what God is, who God's talking about here, the Babylonians. And what God tells Habakkuk that in the future, the Babylonians are going to come. They're going to invade God's people. They're going to take over and they're going to take some of them captive. And based upon how God describes this nation and the following verses, we see that they're powerful. We see that they're malicious and we see that they're pretty fearsome. These are a really like strong group of people who are about to come because in verses 7 through 11, look how God describes them. This is how God paints the picture to a backet of what kind of people they are. He says about Babylon, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than lepers, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. Look what it says in verse 9. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. 
They gather captives like sand. All kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. They pile up earth and take it. They sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. And so there's a lot of imagery here. There's a lot of animated language that God is using. It's because he wants to make a point about how fearsome and powerful this nation is. It says that they gathered captives like sand. Think about how easy it is to gather sand, right? You just grab it. Like they, they take people captive like sand. They laugh at rollers in these fortresses because it's so easy for them to defeat. It says they're horse like wolves and leopards and that their horsemen are like eagles. And what that means is that they're fierce and they're skilled. And so God is saying that this nation is, I mean, they only care about themselves. They are dreadful. They are violent. They are unjust. And here is what I'm doing, Habakkuk, is I'm sending them to punish my people. Because my people have done wrong, and I've seen it. My people haven't listened to me, and I've noticed. And so now this is my judgment. This is my discipline on their lives, is by sending the Babylonians to take them out. And you would think that Habakkuk would be happy about this. Right, this is what he wants. He sees God doing nothing. He wants God to act. He sees nothing going on. He wants God to do something. You think by hearing this, Habakkuk would be happy because it shows that God is active. It shows that he's not idly looking at wrong. It shows that he is present in the problem. But even though God has this plan, Habakkuk does not like it. In fact, he is pretty thrown off and pretty upset that this is what God has in store for what's going to happen next. Because you notice when you get to verse 12, if you have the ESV or maybe some other translations say this as well, it's titled Habakkuk's second complaint. So he res- God responds and he's like, no, nah, I'm not a fan. Listen to what it says. Look at what it says starting in verse 12. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have adorned them as a judgment meaning the Babylonians. Oh, you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Similar language that you see happening. Questions and accusing God of idly looking at wrong. Because even though God answers his concerns, Habakkuk is still complaining. He still doesn't like what he sees. And here's the reason that Habakkuk doesn't like God's plan. He doesn't like it that God is going to use a nation that is more wicked and even worse than Judah to punish them. He doesn't like it that God's plan is to use a nation that is evil and corrupt even more so than his people, to punish Judah for what they've done. Because he doesn't understand how a God who was good and he was just can take a more evil nation and use it to punish his people. That doesn't make sense to him. That doesn't seem fair to him. That doesn't seem right to him. To him, it doesn't make any sense. And so this is a direct assault and accusation against God's character. Because Habakkuk doesn't get why God would do this. And so even though God chooses to answer his prayer, Habakkuk doesn't like the way that he answers it. And so he's still complaining because he's still questioning. 
He's still questioning God's sovereignty. He's still questioning God's motive. He is still questioning God's heart. Because he doesn't understand how a good and just God could use such evil and corrupt people to accomplish his plans. And I think what we see at the heart of what Habakkuk is saying here in this passage is the most relatable part of this entire book. Because we all get this. We all know what it's like to ask God to do something, something specific in our lives, to pray and to ask God to show up, and then he does. But instead of being amazed, instead of being in awe, instead of worshiping him and thanking him for it, we don't. Because he doesn't answer it exactly the way that we wanted him to. He doesn't show up in the situation the way that we hoped he would. So maybe God does heal our grandmother of cancer. But then it comes back three months later. Or we finally restore that relationship with our dad. But then he walks out on our mom. Or we finally stop dealing with all the loneliness that we've been struggling with only to start battling with depression right after it goes away. We all know what it's like to feel the way that Habakkuk does here. To know that God is active, but not like it. Not be a fan of it because we feel like that God is just playing chess with our lives. And we don't like the moves that he's making. We don't like the places that he is putting us. We don't like the things that are going on around us. And so we find ourselves in that moment questioning who God is and what God is doing. Because the problem in this passage isn't that God's not present. The problem is it's not, he's not present in the way that Habakkuk wants him to be. That's the same thing that happens in our lives. There are times in our life that just like in this passage, God does something that doesn't make sense to us. That if we're honest, at best seems that wise, at best seems wise, and at worst just seems wrong. That causes us like Habakkuk to complain to say, I don't get it, because it doesn't make any sense where a God who is sovereign, who's in control of everything, would choose to do what God is doing in this situation. And when we find ourselves in those moments, to us, it seems like there's a contradiction in God's character. There's this contradiction between what we've been taught about God in Scripture and what we see God doing in the world. And this contradiction causes us to really ask the question, who is God? Who really is God? Because it doesn't seem to match up what we see and what we've been taught. Because we think, man, if God was really good, he would have kept my grandmother from dying. If God was really loving, he would give me so much better family life. And if God was really kind, he wouldn't cause me to continue to wrestle with all this emotional pain in my life. And if God was truly sovereign, he would put an end to all the abuse and all the injustice and all the things that we see happening in our world today. So in those moments, we find ourselves feeling like there's a contradiction in God's character. Because we see God moving, we just don't like it. And here's why we don't like it. We question God's choices when we don't trust his character. 
That's exactly what Habakkuk is doing here. He is questioning God's choice. He's questioning God's plan. He's questioning God's actions because he doesn't trust his character. It doesn't make sense to him. It doesn't add up to him. It doesn't seem like this is the fair choice to do in this situation. And we do the same thing in our lives. In the moments that we feel this way, we question what God is doing. We question his choices because honestly, we don't trust his character. We don't believe all the stuff that we've read about him. So that's exactly where Habakkuk finds himself. Exactly where he finds himself in this moment, questioning God's character. And as he continues to write for a few more verses, all the way through the end of chapter one, he just continues to tell God why he doesn't think it's a good plan that he's using the Babylonians to punish his people Judah. But we see when he gets to the very end of this prayer, There's something that he does at the beginning of chapter 2. This is how he ends this prayer to God. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And so as he ends this second complaint to God, what Habakkuk says is like a watchman. He's just going to wait in his tower And he's going to see how God's going to respond back to him. He's going to see how God is going to answer him. And as he waits, Habakkuk is forced to live with this tension, isn't he? This tension with why a God who is sovereign over everything's answer to violence is more violence to live with this question where he sees what God is doing, but he doesn't like it because it doesn't make sense to him. He finds himself forced to live in this tension. But there's something going on in this first chapter that we can't miss, that we cannot miss if we really want to understand what is happening here. And it's that when God answers Habakkuk, when he comes to him and he cries out to him and God tells him what he is going to do, God knew that Habakkuk wasn't going to like it. God knew that this would stir more confusion and more complaining in his heart. And see, God was okay with that happening. Because we ever serve a God who isn't just all-powerful, we serve a God who is also all-knowing. So he knew when he told Habakkuk his plan to bring the Babylonians to take over Judah, he knew full and well that Habakkuk wasn't going to like it. And he could have told him the rest of the plan, but he doesn't. Or what else he was going to do, but he doesn't. Instead, he stops it here. And so what that means is that God wanted Habakkuk to live with this tension between what he wanted God to do and what God was actually going to do. And as we continue to walk through this book, we'll see that God has a reason for why he's doing this. He continues to explain to Habakkuk why this is happening. So a resolution is coming. Eventually, all of this is going to make so much more sense to Habakkuk. But in this moment, as he is pinning this prayer to God, it doesn't. And I don't want us to be quick to move past this. As people, we don't like tension. As people, we don't like things unresolved. That bothers us. But often in our lives, that's where we find ourselves. Just like a back in the story, we find ourselves having to live with tension. 
Because the reality is the world that we live in is broken. And God will do things both now and all throughout your life that will cause you to scratch your head. And how you respond in those moments, what you do in those moments reveals something so important. And it's what do you truly believe about God? Not what you know about God, not what you've been taught about God, but what do you truly believe about God? In those moments when we find ourselves in this tension, it reveals to us what we truly believe about God's character. And so often I believe God puts us in these moments, in his sovereignty, he puts us in these moments where we have to live with this tension in our lives, where we see these contradictions in his character, where we find ourselves living just the way that Habakkuk does here because it forces us to look at ourselves and to see what it is that we don't think is true about God. The tension that you have in your life is like a stress test for your faith. It shows you where you truly are spiritually. It shows you what you don't think is true about God's character. And here's why this is so important. If we don't understand the misconceptions we have about God, then we can't fix them. If we don't understand the misconceptions that we have about God, then we can't fix them. We can't grow from them. We can't make changes in what we believe and how we process things if we don't understand what it is that we don't think is true about God. And so God in his goodness and in his sovereignty puts us in these situations where we feel this tension in our relationship with him. We feel this tension between who he is and what he is doing to cause us to examine our hearts to say, what is it that I don't think is true about God? Because until I think that God doesn't truly love me, can I take the step to start to heal that and change that misconception in my life? Until I realize that I don't think God has my best interest in mind, can I take the step to know that God is always for me and never against me? So this tension that we have in our lives, we want to resolve it and we want to get rid of it, but sometimes we need to sit in it. And tonight, that's exactly what I want us to do. Because whether it's right now, whether it's in the future, maybe it's even happened to you in the past, at some point in your life, you're going to have to deal with the tension between what you've been taught about God and what you see in the world around you. In fact, I love what a girl named Kristen Schumacher said. She says, I think it's so true. She has a study on the book of Habakkuk that is so good and listens to what she says. She says, at some point in our lives, some of you maybe tonight, at some point in our lives, we need to reconcile our theology. That's what we believe about God with our experience. We have to wrestle with the evil in the world when we serve a good God. This is exactly what Habakkuk is about. At some point in our life, we have to deal with this tension that we have. And we have to ask ourselves why we have it. Because we do live in a world that is broken. And God does, does things that is going to cause us to scratch our heads. And what I'm saying is let this be a moment where God can show you what it is that you don't think is true about him. What it is that you doubt is true about his character. Let the tension show you. Let it teach you what it is that you're struggling to believe. And so this is, Ben, you guys can come on up. This is my challenge for you. Allow the, your tension to be your teacher. Allow the tension in your life to show you what it is about God that you don't think is true. 
And here's how I would do that. This is kind of a simple way that I would do that. Is when something, God does something and it bothers you and you don't like it, ask yourself the question, why is it? Why does this bother me? Why does this, why do I struggle so much in this moment in my relationship with God when this happens? When I see injustice going on around me, when I see somebody being taken advantage of, when I find myself feeling like God isn't for me, when I find myself doubting that he likes me, what is it in this moment that I don't think is true about God's character? Ask yourself that question. And what you'll discover is maybe you have this tension, maybe this tension will teach you that you don't think that God is really that good. Or maybe it will teach you that, you know, I don't really think God likes me, like he loves me because that's what God does, right? But I don't think he really likes me. And so I always feel like he's out to get me. So when he does something, I get frustrated because I think he's doing it because he's trying to spite me. Or maybe it will teach you that you don't really think God is truly sovereign. Or maybe it will teach you that you don't think God has your best interest in mind. Or maybe the tension will teach you that you don't truly believe that God has everything that you need to be happy. Allow your tension to be your teacher. Allow it to show you what it is that you don't think is true about God's character. And so that's where I want to land this. That's where I want to sit tonight. I want to sit in this tension. I want to leave with this cliffhanger. I don't want us to resolve this so quickly. I want us to ask ourselves the question. And so when you're in your community groups this week, talk about this. When you're hanging out with a friend later, talk about this. Let's let's sit here. Let's find out what it is that we don't think is true about God's character. And then when we continue to go through this book next week and we pick up in chapter two, then we can start working towards a resolution. Then we can start working towards some steps that we can take. But for now, I just want us to sit. And you might know exactly what it is in your life that you don't feel like you think is true about God. And maybe you don't. Maybe you need to wrestle with this. Maybe this is something that you need to process through. And that's totally fine. Sometimes it's not as evident in our lives as in other times. But let's find ourselves doing this. And in the midst of this, let's still worship. In the midst of this, let's still praise him. In the midst of this, let's still worship God. Let's allow the tension to be our teacher and let it show us what it is that we don't think is true about God. And then next week, we can take some steps to find a resolution to the tension that we have. So let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for just this opportunity, Lord, to just kind of rest in this tension. And God, we hate tension. We don't like tension. We like resolutions. We like problems to be solved. And God, you are good. In times, you answer that. But at certain times in our life, you cause us to sit. You cause us to wait. And you cause us to just have faith. And my prayer is that in those moments that we're sitting and that we're waiting and we're looking for an answer. My prayer, God, is that you would show us in our lives what it is that we don't think is true about you. What are the misconceptions that we have? Show us, God. I mean, so much of our life, Father, so many times that we're angry and we're frustrated and we're angry at you is because we're believing a misconception about you, Lord. We don't trust your heart. We're questioning your motives. Just like Habakkuk here, we don't think that you're a God who is for us. And so may we just sit here tonight, God, realizing that even when we don't see it, you're still working in our lives. And allow that tension, Lord, to teach us what it is that we don't believe is true about you. And now, as we spend some time worshiping you, Lord, may you reveal that to us. 
And we ask this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and continue to worship together.